So just before, just before we start, um, uh, just before I start my message, I've got a little video that I'd like you to see, and an unexpected letter. I think this is an awesome uh, beginning, and this is what Easter's all about. Jesus, who do you think you are? You came riding into town. You claimed to be God. The people lined the streets and shouted, Hosanna! Oh, it looked like they loved you. But they didn't. They did not love you. They did not heed your words. They were not your friends. They were your enemies. And before the week had even ended, they crucified you. And now, here you are, nailed, on a cross, naked and weak. Of course, the only reason I'm here is because I know what you're really up to. You're paying for something. You have been crowned with guilt, the shame of all the people you love. The mistakes of every person, that nagging selfishness that emerges from the womb like a cancer that never stops growing, the cheating, the backstabbing, the despicable things they wish upon others, all the secrets kept under wraps, kept behind closed doors. I can see you pushing with your feet, trying to breathe underneath the weight of it all, all the petty anger of prideful men the blatant disregard for others, the lack of compassion, the insistence of entitlement, the material obsessions, the unspeakable amounts of money they spend on looking good while their fellow humans are starving. What does it feel like knowing that all of this is on you now? Every divorce, every abandonment, every deadbeat dad, every gunshot, every kid lying dead in the street, the men who kidnap girls and sell their dignity for a few dollars, all the insecure rage and outbursts, the I hate you, the I'll do what I want, the pornographic addictions, the jealousy, the idols, the celebration of vanity, the constant pursuit of look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, now we're looking at you, Jesus. And all I can see is a world drowning in sin and suffering. I realize these were not your doing. Nonetheless, I'm happy for you to be taking the blame. Humanity has done a fine job with this, but I'll take it from here. Before we're done, I just have to ask, what kind of person claims he can forgive the whole world? Who do you think you are? Dear Death, I got your letter. My apologies for it taking a few days to write back. I had some important work to finish. I know you weren't expecting me to reply, but I'm always eager to provide the answer to a good question. 
Who do I think I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the eternity before history. I am the potter who spun the galaxies. I am the spirit over the deep and the one who tells mountains to migrate. I am the cloud of day, the fire of night. I am the co-conspirator behind the scandal of grace. I am the keeper of the books. I am well aware of the debts that line the pages of every generation, and today I am stamping each and every one of them paid in full. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you. I am the just and furious wrath that makes hell look like a campfire. And I am the towering wave of mercy that can quench its thirsty flame. I am the billowing storm of love that sits on every horizon. And my goodness rains down on both the wicked and the righteous. I am the redeemer of wasted years. I am the welcome home to every prodigal son. I am the voice in the ear of every young girl whispering, I created you, and you were created beautiful. I am faithful even to the faithless. My name is salvation. My name is power, even power over you. Do you really want to know who I am? I am the foot on your head. I am the spear in your side. I am the one author of this story. I am the one holding the pen. And I will block you out with a single stroke of my hand. I will have the last word because I am the word. And death, I am here to give you a word. On Friday, you weren't attending my funeral. You were attending yours. The nails in my hand will be the ones in your coffin. And just to be clear, I was not a victim of human plans and I was certainly never a slave to you. I am the victor. I am the master. I am the one who sets the captives free. And not only have I broken your grip on me, but I will pry your fingers from all who call my name. You are done. You are powerless. Your work is null and void. Pack up your bags. Go and tell your friends. It is finished. And in case you're still wondering, who do I think I am? I'll tell you who. I am. Sincerely, Jesus. Yeah, that makes me want to stand up and cheer. I will pry your fingers <laughs> off of all who call upon my name. I love it. Uh, inspiring, isn't it? Isn't it true? Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 to 57.
Well, this is the final in the Jesus and Jerusalem series uh, coming up to Easter. I'm returning to you this message this morning. And just to recap what we've been looking at over the last month, uh, the first message I am coming to you, why did Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem? Why is Jerusalem so important? And then he got to Jerusalem, I am with you. Jesus enters Jerusalem, causes the fig tree uh, to wither and upsets the money changers. The old covenant is finished. The new covenant is being ushered in. It's not being replaced. I, I mean, it's not being updated. It's being replaced. And that's important to understand. The old covenant isn't, isn't somehow made better. It's obsolete. It's gone. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. And it's only through Christ. It's not through uh, it's keeping all the rules and all the regulations that, that from, from the old covenant. That the old covenant is completely finished. It's only through Christ that we have access to the throne of God. And then Good Friday, we looked at I am cast out. Now Jesus suffered and died Good Friday. As uh, Hebrews 13, 12 to 14 says, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the gate, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. In our Good Friday service, we heard Nicodemus' last words. He said, do you remember? Do you remember what Nicodemus said? He said, is there any hope for me? Because he remained silent as Jesus was taken to the cross. This morning, our, we have our answer. Don't we? Hallelujah. We have our answer. And Jesus has risen from the dead. And then this morning, I am returning to you. Jesus rejected, tried, executed. He did not stay dead. He told his disciples that he would rise again, and he did. When he ascended, he told us that he would return for the faithful, and he will. Are you ready? Because our world is, it's like, it's one big flush, isn't it? The world is kind of going down. It's going down quickly, actually. The world is a mess. That means Jesus is coming soon. And we need to be ready. So my text this morning is from Matthew chapter 28. I want to read starting at verse 1. I'll read the first 10 verses. Matthew chapter 28. Now, each gospel has a story, uh, has um, a witness that give the details of the resurrection of the empty tomb. Uh, I like Matthew's version, one of my favorite. Yes? Uh, chapter 28, verse 1, starting at verse 1. So that's the last book, uh, that's the last chapter in the book of Matthew. So starting at verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn. What's the first day of the week? Sunday, yeah. As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. 
His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! And so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. Well, we're going to look at first, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the grieving Marys. We're going to look at the disturbed grave. We're going to look at the resurrection promise and the promise keeper. Those four things. And so let's uh, start with the, the grieving Marys. I'm, um, and I'm using Matthew's account specifically, although each gospel writer tells, how the, uh, tells uh, of how the tomb became empty and uh, therefore that Jesus was resurrected and how this empty tomb was discovered. Each one tells that story. It's important to the Gospels. Uh, I'll just say that it's it's very important to the Gospel. Uh, Now, each account emphasizes this event from a slightly different perspective. And it would appear that the specific details are a, a little bit different in each account. Now, I'm not going to get into the differences or, or the, because each witness, when you see an accident, say one sees uh, an accident from the right side of the highway and some, another person sees it from the left side of the highway, you're going to get two different perspectives. One, and, and so that's exactly what happened with these gospel, with these witnesses. Each one saw it from a slightly different angle, the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb. And so, as a matter of fact, um, I, I, I found an article by J. Uh, Warner Wallace. Now, he was a cold case detective. And, and actually, he's uh, very well known, internationally known, for taking cold cases and looking at the details, checking the witnesses out, and then figuring out what happened and, and how everything lines up. And, and this, this guy is amazing. As a matter of fact, um, he began as an as an atheist he didn't believe in god at all he had a lot he had some members in his family that, that had become christians and and he was he was really antagonistic towards them and he didn't want anything to do with christianity and so as a cold case detective he decided to look at the eyewitness accounts in the gospels right and check them out from his training as a cold case detective to check these witnesses out in their stories to see uh, how this lined up and see if he could make a case for Jesus. And through that, he became a believer. He says the evidence is amazing. The evidence is just all points to Jesus was real and what he said was the truth. And so he became a Christian. And so it was um, J. Uh, Warner Wallace and 
And the article is titled, How Many Women Visited the Tomb of Jesus? And so each gospel has a little bit different angle, right? And, and, and so you can find that if you look it up on Google quite easily. In the article, he says, every gospel author agrees. The women came to the tomb and were the first to discover it empty. This agreement makes the account all the more credible. Women weren't described here to make the narrative more convincing. They actually hurt the account. Do you hear what he's saying? And he, and he goes on to say, but were instead described because they happened to be the true first witnesses. And so the, the truth is that women, they even, they, they even hesitated to have women speak in court because they didn't think women were credible witnesses. They didn't count them, right? And so if you put all of these witnesses, uh, witness accounts together, it would be reasonable to conclude that there were probably a group of ladies. In Matthew, there's only two of them mentioned, but there's probably a group of about five ladies that went to, to, to the tomb. Now, they came to the tomb early in the morning, and according to Luke, the women who had been with Jesus in Galilee, uh, Luke says that, had watched Joseph and Nicodemus from a distance on the Friday night, noting where Jesus was buried, and then went home to prepare a mixture of spices and fragrant oils. You see, they didn't have time the Friday night in order to pre prepare the body correctly, right? And so it, it, was, it was done in such a hurry that they want, and they wanted to do it right. Right? And so they, their intention was to complete their service of love because it, was, and now, because it was the Sabbath, which was sun down to sun up all day Saturday. Uh, actually, Friday night, starting Friday night, ending Sunday morning when the sun came up. That was the Sabbath. And so it takes in the three days. Right? And so their intention was to bring spices and do a proper job early Sunday morning how they must have loved him. There's no doubt that they loved Jesus. Now it's important to note that they did not come to the tomb to witness Jesus being raised from the dead. They came to grieve. They came to serve. They came expecting a body. We get a glimpse of the Jewish practice of grieving in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. And the Jews believed that the spirit of the deceased hung around the body for three days. And then the spirit would go. It would leave. And there was no hope for the spirit to return to the body. That's what the Jews believed. And so, the, and, and, and so they would hang around the tomb, the grave. Uh, and They were tombs. They weren't in the ground and so um, they would hang around the tomb for three days weeping and wailing grieving the loss of their loved one they would hang around and with the hopes if they could grieve if they could be loud enough if they could if they could sorrow enough that perhaps the spirit would change its mind and be reunited with the body and that person would rise from the dead and so they would stay for three days weeping and wailing. 
Some families were well off and could hire professional mourners. John says that many of the Jews had joined the women to mourn at Lazarus' tomb. Martha went out to talk to Jesus when she heard he was coming. Mary stayed at the house. After talking to Martha, Jesus calls for Mary. And somebody says to Mary in the house, says that the master is calling for you. And so she gets up and she leaves. And all the mourners that were in the house, this is, see, it's been four days already. Lazarus had been dead four days already. So there was no reason to weep at the tomb anymore because there was no hope for the spirit to re-enter the body. That's what they believed, right? And so Mary was home. And so they, the, the mourners said, oh, I th- they, she's going over to the tomb to mourn now. And so all the mourners came with her, weeping and wailing and, and crying out and, and expressing their grief. And may, maybe they had professional mourners with them as well. But Lazarus had been dead for four days. This is uh, past, again, when traditionally the body could be reunited with the spirit. They did not expect the dead to be raised. That's for sure. The women at the tomb didn't expect Jesus to be raised from the dead. They came there. They came there with spices and oils to anoint his body. And they were discussing among themselves, who's going to roll the stone away from us? Because we're just, like, we're not as strong as some of the men are. Right? Who's going to do that for us? The religious leaders knew that Jesus had said he would, um, that he w- would rise from the dead. That's what Jesus was claiming. The religious leaders knew that, and, and they, they understood what Jesus was talking about. But the women did not, and nor did his disciples. They came to grieve. That's why they'd come, to anoint and to grieve. Their sense of loss was unimaginable. You know, I didn't go to my first funeral till I was 21, I think. I didn't really know what it was like to experience any loss. I do now. No doubt about that. And so most of you do as well. You know what it's like to lose someone you love, to grieve. And so still grieving and processing loss is an individual experience we can experience it for ourselves when we lose somebody we love but it's still very individual according to Tyan Dayton there are several there are a number of stages now the the four of them are common and, and are, uh, most um, psychologists or it will, will say this is what happens when, when you lose a loved one, you'll go through this process, right? It's emotional numbness and shut down first, right? And then there's a yearning and a searching. Why did this happen? There's got to be a reason, right? And then there's a reorganization and, or, or, no, there's disruption, anger, and despair, and then you, you're actually in your grieving, in the process, you, and this happens, you kind of get angry. Like, why did this happen? And whose fault is it? And why did they go there? Or why, why, was, why were they even driving in that town if there was an accident, right? Then there's reorganization and integration. And then the fifth one, I really like this, because, and this isn't, listed in most 
um, a, a, as most um, stages, this isn't included. But I like this one, and I think this was important. Reinvestment, spiritual growth, and a renewed commitment to life. And I think that's really important. But Tyan says that there's no, no one follows the pattern exactly that you experience some, you know, the, you experience some at the same time, and, and, but everybody's experience is unique. Now, and, and this is what he says, now, although mourning carries the scent of darkness and pain, it is also a time-honored path towards the light. And so the women, they came to the tomb expecting, and I think they were probably going through these first two stages. They were going through this emotional numbness, right? And they were yearning and searching for answers. Like, how could this happen? Jesus healed people. Jesus raised the dead. How could they kill him? They were looking for answers. And who will move the stone for us? Well, let's look at the disturbed grave. Of all the accounts, again, Matthew is the most exciting. I love Matthew's account. There are a number of things that happen. First of all, it talks about an earthquake. You know, it's really interesting. When Jesus died, what happened? The earth shook. There was an earthquake when Jesus died. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks split and, and the graves were open and many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. They were raised from the dead. And they were seen in the city, in Jerusalem, walking around. When Jesus was raised from the dead, what happened? The earth shook. The earth shook. I like to look at it, it, it like this. Well, the earth shook and the grave was opened, right? That's what happened when Jesus... Um, rose from the dead. But I like to look at it like this as it's like it's as if the earth wept with great convulsions when Jesus died. Do you, you ever see somebody really weeping and crying and their shoulders are just shaking? Right? They're, they're just crying. And it's, it's so your, your body just starts to shake. Right? I think the earth, because its creator had just been nailed to the cross and had just breathed his last, I think the earth shook like that. The earth was weeping for Jesus. His creation was weeping. But then, have you ever leapt for joy when you've, that you're so excited and you begin to shake? Well, I think when Jesus rose from the dead, creation just began to shake with excitement and joy. My creator is alive. That's the way I look at it. So the earthquake. And then let's, how about the soldiers? Again, I love the descriptive commentary from Matthew. He says that the angels descended from heaven and went to work rolling the stone away from the entrance uh, to the tomb. I think the angel just of the Lord, he completely ignores the soldiers as if they weren't even there. <laughs> just roll the stone away, right? And, um, uh, and then he sits on the stone and he says, you guys got coffee? <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe he didn't say that. But uh, no, the soldiers, they didn't even move. 
The reality is, as Matthew describes it, the ones who were guarding the tomb were like dead men. They were like, the, the, but the one that was supposed to be dead was alive. I love that. It, I'd be curious as to how Matthew got his information. Like, did the women actually see this as it was going on? As they were coming towards the tomb, did they see this? Or did, the, did Matthew interview some of the soldiers later? I, I'd love to see how Matthew got his information. But it is the word of the Lord, and it's true. We can rely on that. Well, then there's the angel of the Lord. Um, so there's the earthquake, there's the soldiers, and the angel of the Lord. The angels were often sent from Jesus' father in, support, in, in supporting his ministry in a supportive role. We uh, can see this all through his earthly life. Jesus' conception, his, his birth, uh, the temptation in the wilderness, when Jesus prayed in the garden, and here his resurrection, all these times angels came to minister to the Lord Jesus Christ. The angels never came to his crucifixion. Isn't that interesting? No wonder... No wonder Jesus called out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no, uh, no support from the angels that he had created. The angel came for two reasons. First, to roll away the stone. Now, this wasn't actually to let Jesus out. We want to make that clear. It's not to let Jesus out, as if Jesus couldn't disintegrate the, the rock with, with the power of his word right rock be gone boom and you know dust everywhere and no jesus could have done that quite easily uh so the angel um and no, gee, I, I mean let's look at it this way if you are charged with a crime okay and you're put into prison you're put into jail you're in the you're in the jail house and the news comes to the jailkeeper from the judge. Oh, that man that we have in jail there, he's been found actually not guilty. We thought it was him, but there's another guy that was dressed like Tim. You know, we've, we've got the real one. We've got the real culprit. So what's the jailkeeper going to do? Is he going to just throw the keys to the person in prison and said, you know, you can let yourself out? Or behind door number two is the jailkeeper going to come with the key and open the door and let the guilt the, the innocent party out well that see that's what god did god said my son is not guilty and i'm sending this uh, 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 a messenger to open with the key this is just to show everybody that he is innocent right and so this man is not guilty. So an angel of the Lord was sent to show the world Jesus was innocent of all charges. The best thing is that Jesus, um, he, got, he gets a not guilty ruling, um, but we're the ones that are set free. Right? Because we're the ones that are actually set free from this not guilty ruling. How cool is that? The second reason that the angel was sent was to testify and give instruction. Uh, where would we be without instructions? Think about that. Um, 
How many, how many wall units have come pre-assembled? How many these days? You know, it's easy to, to, for, for them to um, make all the parts and box them up really nice from China or someplace, right? And then it, is it easier to ship a whole wall unit all pre-made or is it easier to ship a little box with all the parts? It's easier to ship the parts, right? And so that's our world in these days, right? How many appliances come with no instructions whatsoever? How many kids know what an offside in hockey is with the coach's instructions sometime, right? How, I mean, many of us, have tried to fix something, place something, assemble something without instructions? Any, anyone? Yeah. Many of us have tried to follow Jesus without instructions. At some point, you have to go back and dismantle, if you're trying to put something together without instructions, you have to dismantle everything and then actually read the instructions and start over. I've, come on, I, I've had to do it. You've had to do it. Many of you have had to do it. And you have to start again. The angel of the Lord came to give some instructions. First thing the angel of the Lord said is, don't be afraid. Fear not. And if you've ever experienced a supernatural encounter... I have. It's frightening. Now, um, the description of the angel here is, is brilliant clothing, hard on the eyes, white. Right? Uh, and a countenance like lightning. Do you think they might have been afraid, the soldiers? Or the women? With a, 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 a person standing there of that bigger than life strength something they don't see every day who wouldn't be afraid the angels are of the supernatural realm but are able to appear in the natural realm and there are many different kinds of angels like archangels there's cherubim there's seraphim the seraphim are the ones with the six wings and they're all magnificent a number of times an angel appears with a flaming sword as if their appearance isn't scary enough and so when they show up, even the bravest of men will be afraid. And so their first instruction is to not be afraid. We are not here to harm you. We are here to serve you. That was the first. And then, and then the angel says, he is not here. Now, if you've ever looked for somebody and they weren't there, you know, you, you get, and especially if it's your kid, right? Have you ever lost your child someplace? We lost Daniel at the circus one time. And you get this kind of sickening feeling inside, right? And you, you kind of, and then you start to panic, right? Have you ever lost kids uh, or at the circus, at the mall? Have you ever, ever lost, have you ever left somebody at the gas station and drove away? It happens. It happens. The women were expecting to find the body of Jesus, but the angel said, he's not here. And then the angel said, he is risen. The angel 
uh, didn't stop it. He's not here, but continued to give a good reason why the body of Jesus wasn't there. What would have been going on in their minds at this point? Could they even comprehend what they had just heard? They had seen Jesus tortured. They'd seen him in agony. They had seen the flesh ripped off his back from the whipping. They had seen him nailed to the cross, and they'd seen a spear thrust up into his, uh, up under his ribs, right up into his heart. They'd seen that. They'd, all of them. And they'd seen water and blood coming out. And so Jesus, they saw, was dead. They saw that. There's nobody coming back from that, at least not in the natural world. But the angel told them, that he, was arrived, uh, that he had risen, he was alive. And so can you imagine what they were thinking at this point? How can this be? Because what we saw was horrific. And then the angel said, come and see. And uh, the empty tomb they saw with their own eyes. Don't you love the invitation to the women? Come on. Come on, I'll take you on a tour. Angel jumps down from the stone and beckons him to experience the fullness of this moment. The next day, John... Now, I love the, this, these three words together, come and see. I've heard this before. And this... Jesus said these words. And so it was John the Baptist was baptizing. It was the day after he'd baptized Jesus. And he said, behold... Look at it, it's God's lamb. And then Jesus was walking by the next day. And John points him out and said, look at there goes the lamb of God. Right? And two of his disciples were, were, heard him say that. One of them was Andrew. And so they're following Jesus, right? I can just imagine two creepy little guys following Jesus from a distance, just kind of... And then finally Jesus turns around and says, can I help you guys? <laughs> he says, oh, um, uh, teacher, we're just wondering where you're staying. What did Jesus say? Come and see. And then they stayed with him. They never left him. Andrew, what did he say? He went and got his older brother. We found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Peter, come and see. Come and see. And so I love that invitation. Jesus still invites us to experience the fullness of his resurrection. Come and see, Jesus says. And then he said, go and tell. Uh, the angel instructs them not to keep this news to themselves. They must go and tell Jesus' disciples. Have you ever had to tell somebody bad news? That's difficult, isn't it? It's not an easy task. You feel the pain of the person you're about to engage. Good news, however, we shouldn't have to be, uh, we, we shouldn't have to be told to share good news, as a matter of fact. Uh, how about, um, does any mother have to tell, I, I mean, does any mother not have a desire to share with the world that her kid scored the winning goal in overtime? in a hockey game. <laughs> Somebody might know about that. And you don't have to, you, nobody has to tell you to go tell people that. You volunteer. You're so excited about that your kid scored a goal that you, you want to tell the world. It's good news, right? 
It's good news. Jesus is risen from the dead. Go and tell his disciples. I don't think they needed to be told. And then he is going before you and he will meet you. He will see you there. Uh, whenever we're called, uh, whenever we're called to be or whenever we're called um, to endure, he has gone ahead of us. When we're going through trials, when we're going through hard times, when we're, when, when we're suffering loss, Jesus goes ahead of us and will meet us there. I don't know how many times I've counseled people that when they're going through a trial or a hardship, what they need to do is fix their eyes on Jesus. It's not that... It, it, it's just that Jesus wants to meet you there in your hardship. It doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact of your loss. But Jesus wants to meet you there and he wants to... Um, and he wants to put salve on you. He wants to heal you of what you're going through. He wants to minister to you there. He knows to throw his, he wants to throw his arms around you and tell you that everything will be okay. Keep trusting me. Stay connected with me. And then we have the resurrection promise. One of the most curious details of the resurrection is that Jesus told his uh, followers exactly what was going to happen. The Bible records at least three occasions. For example, Mark 8.31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days would rise again. What was the disciples' reaction to this? Do you remember this? <laughs> Peter took Jesus aside Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you saying this stuff? He says, nobody's going to do that. That's crazy talk. What, did, what was Jesus' reaction? Get behind me, Satan. Now, I, I happen to believe that, um, that as, as much as... Now, that can be disrupting, right? I, I mean, I, I think it wasn't for Peter's benefit as much as for Jesus. You think, I, th I believe Jesus was really tempted to say, you know what, it's not worth it. Right? And Jesus was just reminding himself that this call to, uh, to not go through the suffering and pain, that, that, was, that wasn't from God the Father, that was from Satan. And so I don't think he was calling Peter Satan as much as he was saying, you know what, I have to go through this. And it, it's tempting not to. And so um, I remember one time, I mean, can you imagine a student telling a teacher that what you're teaching is wrong? I, I, was, I, I, was, uh, I was preaching one Sunday, and, and, a, and a guy didn't take me aside after the service and say, you know what, I, I'm not sure I understand what you were saying. Uh, what he, what somebody could have done is you know put their hand up or just for some clarification if they didn't understand something but this this man i've told this before he stood at the back of the church and said you're wrong pastor doug <laughs> just really loud it's like um that's okay we're still friends uh but he but what was what happened there he was just misunderstanding 
the truth that I was sharing. Right? He was just misunderstanding. He, it could have been, but see, at least Peter, at least Peter did the right thing by taking Jesus aside on his own instead of in front of all the other students. Um, I think that was notable uh, for Peter to do that. Anyway, besides teaching them outright what was going to happen to him, Jesus gave subtle hints that this would happen. Jesus talked about sending the Holy Spirit as a helper in his absence. What? Jesus is going someplace? Right? And so Jesus wasn't going to be there for much longer. And he also told the religious leaders when they asked for a sign that no sign would be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in in the belly of the great fish for three days, so the Son of Man is going to be in the earth for three days. Right? And also in John, it's recorded uh, that uh, John 2.19, destroy this temple. Again, Jesus, they were asking Jesus for a sign. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up again. Now, it's interesting. The religious leaders actually understood what Jesus was saying. That's why, according to Matthew chapter 27, and uh, let me read that, starting at verse 62. And the next day, this is after Jesus um, had been put in the tomb. On the next day, uh, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, they called Jesus a deceiver, said that after three days I will rise Therefore, command that uh, uh, the tomb may be secured with soldiers and a seal. And Pilate said, well, you've got soldiers. You make it as secure as you want. And so they went and they did that. And um, so I think it's really interesting that, that the religious leaders understood, but the disciples didn't understand that Jesus was going to rise again. The religious leaders were, were trying to prevent it. The disciples were just grieving. Well, he's a promise keeper. As they went out quickly from the tomb, and Jesus meets them. You see, the, the, the women, as they had seen the empty tomb, and they were told to go tell his disciples, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Jesus meets them there. What a bonus. That it, what, a, what a thing for Jesus. Can you imagine that? And Jesus tells them to rejoice. And I don't think that he had to tell them that. I think they would have been excited all on their own. But I think when Jesus said to rejoice, that it was Jesus that couldn't keep it in. Right? Don't, don't you love when, when, when people are excited about something? Your joy is for them. Right? And so Jesus, I think this was Jesus' joy coming out when he tells them to rejoice. But I think this was Jesus was overjoyed to see the ladies, the, the women that had been with him in Galilee and that had been part of his, his ministry and supporting him and were friends of his. He was so excited to see them he, that there was joy together, them and Jesus together. Uh, Jesus just couldn't keep it in. And they worshipped him. Jesus repeats what the angel of the Lord told them to do. If they had any doubts whatsoever, those doubts would be gone. 
Now, so what does the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead mean to you? What does it mean? Here's what it means according to Paul in Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, the power that raised Jesus, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and I if we receive Jesus as our Savior. If we said, yes, Lord, then we, that power is in us. That same power that raised Jesus, isn't that incredible? If you have power to live life. Now, I'm just saying that, that God keeps his promises. Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Psalm 72, 22. You are faithful to your promises, O my God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. The one who calls you is faithful, he will do it. And then 2 Corinthians 1, 20. God's word is clear, his promises are yes and amen. We know that God keeps his promises. Jesus said that he would be, right, be, be raised from the dead, and he was raised from the dead. Jesus said that he would save anyone who calls on his name. And he will. And he does save anyone who calls on his name. Jesus said that he's coming back to receive the faithful to himself. And he will, because he promised. Jesus told the disciples that he was going away in John chapter 14. Don't let this rattle you. This is from, uh, I believe it's the message. Don't let this rattle you. You trust God, don't you? Trust me. There is plenty of room for you in my father's home. If that weren't so, what have I have told you that I'm on my way to get a room ready for you? And if I'm on my way to get a room ready, I'll come back and get you so that I, so you can live where I live. And Jesus said he's coming back for us. I want to close with what Rick Warren said. Jesus did not die on the cross just so that we could live comfortable, well-adjusted lives. His purpose is far deeper. He wants to make us like himself before he takes us to heaven. This is our greatest privilege, our immediate responsibility, and our ultimate destiny. Jesus is risen, and he's coming back. We need to be ready. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. Death has conquered. Death has no longer a grip on us. Uh, we, can be, we are forgiven through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a celebration that is, and what empowerment to live our lives. And so help us by your Holy Spirit to uh, 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 live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.